that's uh, one of those interesting songs that seems like you're trying to tell the Lord what to do. Yeah, but it's not really that. It's really a plea, not a demand. Yeah. You know, sound like you're saying, Lord, do it now. Do it for me right, right now. But I think what we're really saying is, Lord, I need you to do it. Right now. Yeah, I, I need you. Yeah, don't, don't delay another minute, Lord. Yeah, this, it, it's urgent. I, I need you. Yeah, I need you yesterday, Lord. Yeah, do it for me right now right now. I've had those moments in my life. Lord, if you're going to show up, <laughs> now, now would be the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm about at the end of Dunhill. <laughs> I needed to be the Lord. And he has impeccable time, time in them. Yeah, he makes it known that he's the one. Yeah. Just in the nick of time, yeah, right between going, going, and before you can get to going, he steps on in there. Make sure you know that it was him. Amen, amen. I uh, have been watching the events that have been transpiring in our country this past week as the Supreme Court of the United States rushed to push out its latest opinions before the close of this current session. I happened to be in Washington, D.C. Monday through Wednesday of this week. And so it was the hot topic on all of the channels. And it wasn't just in D.C. When I got back here, it was still the topic. And it will be a topic moving forward because somehow we feel in our community that we were picking up a head of steam in one area. And it seems like we have been slowed down. And some would say stopped in our tracks. Seems like we're not moving forward. But in fact, we're moving backwards. We've gone back to the future, right? Back to the future. And so I was asking the Lord to give me some direction in this place, because I'm not so certain that we always speak of things of the moment from a spiritual standpoint. Yeah, because, you know, what good is this Christian walk if I can't walk with it in this life? And it's not just a future thing. It's a right now thing. I got to learn how to be a believer here. Walk out my beliefs here. And how do I live around people who tend not to want to see me succeed? Not just me, but my grandchildren. How am I to remain a believer and express and show them Christian sympathy when, try as I might, you just don't see me the same way you see other folks? And so the Lord showed me that these things that we talk about, the Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun. All right? And while it might be a new issue or controversy to us, it's probably been dealt with somewhere in the world before, and we're just calling it a different thing, Cass, but it's the same principle. And so I came to ask you a question today and talk to you about whether or not this happens to be the case, Brittany, is affirmative action in the Bible. Is affirmative action 
in, in the Bible. That's what we've been talking about all week. We call it affirmative, affirmative action. And I came to answer that question in the affirmative. Yes, it is. There is a very vivid example of affirmative action in the Bible. And it's one you're aware of. Oh, yeah. And when I start reading the scripture to you, you're going to, if you never before, see this in a different light than you ever have. This is my prayer. It's found in the gospel. I mean, it's found in the Acts of the Apostles when the church was new. And it's found in the sixth chapter. And we're going to lift the very first, the very first seven verses of that chapter. And everybody in here might not be familiar with that passage of scripture, but I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, at least ten folk in here who should have no problem whatsoever with this passage of scripture. Yeah, because they wouldn't hold the office that they hold without this scripture. Let me go ahead and put Cass in there too, so because he knows. Yeah, so yes. So let me let me see if I can get that, that, that's I want to I want to I want to guide you on this and show you how it's culturally re relevant today and biblically relevant to us if I can. All right. Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7 we'll read it in a moment. But by way of background, if you know anything about the history of the United States of America, then you know that there's one topic that is predominant in our history. It's race. Race is predominant. Yeah, the inequality of the races is a fixed component of our history. Resolving the inequities that are in the United States history has been an all-encompassing enterprise by many people. We sit in this place we're in today because of the strides that have been made by people who lived long before us to allow us the freedom, the freedom of association and gathering and participation because it was not always that way. It was not always that way. And with respect to the specific issue that has predominated the news cycle this past week, at least this past week, we're talking about race as it pertains to college admissions. How do you become a student at a college or university of your choosing? when you are capable of attending and completing the curriculum there, how do you simply gain admission to the schools? In 1954, there was a momentous decision by the United States Supreme Court. We know it as Brown versus Board of Education. Brown versus Board of Education did away with the long-standing concept that it was okay in America to have schools that were separate but equal. Brown versus Board of Education came along and said that is no longer appropriate. It was never right, but this case, this case allowed a platform for the Supreme Court to strike down that ignoble concept that you could purposely separate kids based on race alone 
as long as white kids and black kids had the same resources available to them, which in this country, on boots on the ground, they never did. And so once Brown versus Board of Education established that segregation in public schools was illegal, the public institutions set about trying to integrate their school system or not, or not. Because in the South, there was massive resistance to the integration of public school systems. So much so that even in 1963, when the University of Alabama was attempted to be integrated, the governor of the state famously stood in the schoolhouse door. This is 10 years later now and said that not only would there be segregation in Alabama today, there would be segregation in, uh, in Alabama tomorrow, and he famously said, and forever. George Wallace looked Arthurine Lucy Foster in the face with Thurgood Marshall standing there by her side, Nicholas Katzenbach, who was the U.S. Attorney representative, standing there, they had been sent to the South by John F. Kennedy and his brother, who was the United States Attorney General, to integrate our school systems. Ten years, ten years after the Supreme Court said that segregation in, a public, in public education was unconstitutional. Ten years later, we're not even starting to make strides in Alabama. To avoid integration, southern states, particularly Alabama, would pay for black folk to go to school in other states so they wouldn't have to integrate the schools in Alabama. This is not something I'm telling you, this is something I know Fred Gray went to school and law school at Ohio State, paid for by the state of Alabama, so he wouldn't go to any Alabama school. I'm not telling you what I heard, I'm telling you what I know. Arthur Shores went to law school in Kansas, paid for by the state of Alabama, because they wouldn't admit him to any schools here in Alabama. I can break it down to other professions too. I know about those lawyers Nurses were paid for, all because they refused to allow black babies to go to school with white babies. This is not something that just jumped up. This is something that is baked into the psyche of who we are. Segregation had been deemed illegal from the highest court. But obviously the message didn't get down to the folk around us. And so around 1978, a Supreme Court ruling, still trying to wrestle with this issue of integration, just letting people in school. The colleges realized that their lack of diversity in their student population was creating ripple effects in industry. Industries can't integrate because the kids can't get through the pipeline of education. And so they started trying to take measures on their own to create diverse student populations. And they started looking at factors that might benefit them. And some decided that they would affirmatively act on allowing black students or minority students to come into the school when they were otherwise qualified. We're not talking about kids who were not qualified. We're simply talking about young folk who were otherwise qualified but had been historically prevented from coming to those universities because of one factor, and that's their race. And so they started allowing kids to come in and increasing the number of students. Now, I want to tell you, they've been trying to do this for the last 30 years. 
it's been a tough sell. I can tell you that because even with what you think you know, when you watch a football game on Saturday, it's not telling you the reality of the, success, of the efforts in those schools. Right now, this year, the University of Alabama, the student population is still 76% white, 11% black. All these kids you know, you think you know from our community, who go to school at UA, only amounts to 11%. Auburn's population of minority students has shrunk from 4.3 to 3.9%. That's in 2022. So I want you to put that in perspective when we start talking about integrating public schools. One would think that these schools are just running over with black kids and, and that's simply not the case. We're still trying to get our foot in the door in some places. Still trying to get a, bent, a, 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 a foothold yeah, the Black Student Alliance in a lot of these schools is still struggling. Can't get enough folk to come to the meetings on a regular basis. There ain't no Black Power meeting going on on these school campuses. And so the cases before the Supreme Court, I need to stay on task, the cases before the Supreme Court today that brought the attention to this latest set of justices were two cases, one from Harvard University and one from the University of North Carolina. Now, even though we have two members of the United States Supreme Court who have a lot of melanin in their skin, well, three, if you include Justice Sotomayor, who is Hispanic, even though you have them on, on, the, uh, on the bench, you can't count on all of them. Because all our, all our skin ain't our kin. All right? It's just not the case. Yeah, you almost know one of them ain't going to vote for you. All right? He didn't hear the song, How I Got Over. Yeah, he didn't hear my soul look back and wonder. Even though he would just cross the line in Georgia, when he grew up, and if you want to find a state that's more racist than Alabama and Mississippi, just go to the east, and Georgia sits there. I don't care about Atlanta today. Yeah, that's a metro, that's a met, a, a, a metro center. You get out in some of them rural areas of Georgia, yeah, and you better get out of town quick. We, we know that, we know that, Ahmad. We know that you can't even walk around looking at houses to buy without somebody killing you over there just because you walking around inspecting while black. All right? So things, while they look like they're different, haven't changed a whole lot. So two cases, one from North Carolina, one from Harvard. Ironically, Judge Katanji, um, Justice Katanji uh, 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 Jackson had to recuse herself from the Harvard case because she sat on the board of trustees for Harvard. And so she couldn't hear that case. In both cases, they were brought by a nonprofit organization uh, called Students for Fair Admissions. That's the name of the group that brought the cases. Students for Fair Admissions scrubbed that title, and the majority of Students for Fair Admissions were Asian students. They were mad because they couldn't simply apply to the school they wanted to get in and get in in as many numbers as they wanted to. In other words, they felt like if 5,000 Asian students applied to Harvard and were qualified, all 5,000 ought to get in. That, that, that's what they feel, you know. But Harvard has its numbers, and it tries to create a diverse population. I will tell you this, and this is helpful. Harvard and the University of North Carolina oppose the lawsuits. 
They defended their enrollment practices by saying their enrollment practices make the school better because they wanted to be more diverse. And so they, they defended it, and so did a number of other institutions around the country write amicus briefs. Those are friends of the court briefs that say, we agree with this person's position, and we want to write this brief to support where they are. What they wanted to do in front of the justices is create a groundswell of support for not doing away with affirmative action policies. Didn't work. I also want to tell you this, run the video. I also want to show, tell you this. It's not just a black issue. It's a minority issue. All right? But, you know, the poor dog won't wag his own tail. I'm talking about black folk right now. Okay? Not only that, you need to understand that the churches have been involved. Immediately after the ruling, the major church organizations, except the Southern Baptists, came out immediately, immediately in opposition to the ruling from the Supreme Court. And you heard from the Presbyterian Church, you heard from the United Methodist Church, you heard from the Church of Christ, uh, all of them opposed to the ruling from the Supreme Court. And so this is an issue that has gotten the attention of a lot of folk. In the case from Harvard uh, and, and, and North Carolina, they were simply the cases that came before the court. It could have been any other case, any other schools, to be very honest with you, that were brought, all right? And the students for fair admissions, if you ask them, if you ask the majority of Asian students if they thought that affirmative action programs were good, most of them would say no. They don't support it. They simply believe and this is a crazy notion to me in America that you ought to be able to get what you want on, on merit. On merit. That's, that's their theory. And that does work in a perfect world. But we live in an imperfect place where people have been denied access to many things. And if it simply had been on merit, then we might not be in this place. All right? But on merit is the argument that won that day. And I think going forward, you're going to see a lot of universities still trying to establish their own policies for admitting a more diverse population. They simply cannot say that one of the factors that they're looking at is race. All right, now, that doesn't mean that when your child wants to go to Harvard, if they want to go to Harvard, uh, a whole lot of HBCUs they can go to, but if they want to go to Harvard, doesn't mean I'm intentional in saying that, all right? Doesn't mean that they cannot talk about what it means to be a young black man in their community. It doesn't mean they can't talk about what they've experienced as they've gone through because they can't deny you talking your reality. All right, so put that in the paperwork. Make sure they know that I, you know, I would have been able to do ABC, but this is, a, this is a circumstance that I found myself in. And it's interesting, it's interesting that some of the proponents of affirmative action always think, uh, uh, make people think that allowing minorities into some places is a handout. That, that's the notion, that's the negative spin they put on this topic that it's a handout. It's not a handout. It's not allowing people who are, other, who are not qualified to be in the space. That's the negative spin, all right? What affirmative action does is say we all benefit by a more diverse playing field. And in fact, by allowing a more diverse playing field, we take into account the historical background of other people, the limitations that society has placed on them, and we will give them an extra look because of that. It doesn't mean, they wouldn't even be in the consideration if they weren't qualified, all right? It wouldn't even be part of the discussion. And so, I came to tell you today that there were two who wrote on the court, Katanji Jackson, if you don't read Supreme Court Justice, um, Supreme Court Opinions, that's fine. Read her dissent 
as history. Katanji wrote a dissent. I haven't read it yet, but I've just, I've just heard of it. Read her dissent as history because she goes through the background of this issue and relates to why we still haven't got over. All right, for anybody who thinks we've made it, who think because their child is there, we as a people have not gotten over. We still got a long way to go. So read that, not just hers, but Sotomayor is in the same space because Hispanic kids have the same issue that we have. They have even greater issues because they also have, you know, national, you know, becoming citizens. That, that, that issue is on the table for them significantly. And when we talk about diversity, we're not just talking about American African, American who happen to be black. We're talking about Africans who want to get into that school who are qualified. We're talking about people who are from the Caribbean who happen to be qualified, who apply and who want to get into that school. We're talking about people of color from all around the world being able to apply and get in the school simply because they're qualified. It also needs to be mentioned that there are other affirmative action programs that don't call themselves affirmative action. They are called legacy programs. That means if your daddy graduated from Harvard, you can attend as a legacy. It don't matter if you are dumb as a rock. Because your daddy was a legacy, you automatically can stand up for admission. But they don't consider that. Or if your daddy happens to be rich and puts a building on the campus, you're going to get in automatically. Yeah, those policies were not talked about by John Roberts, who simply thinks America has reached a point when racism doesn't exist anymore. Now, you and I both know that that's not the case. And so they, they, they voted um, that race can't be a factor. But is this something that the Bible talked about? Let's go to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, yeah, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, church is growing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained, Ingrid, against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, or let's translate that, to serve in this other capacity. All right? Brothers and sisters, they said, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, who was from Antioch and was a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid, hands, laid their hands on them. And then verse 7 says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. To the faith. All right. This is the beginning. If you read, we studied, we did a great study on Acts and Bible study, 45 minutes of purpose. Last year was a great study. And we know from studying the Acts of the Apostles that the, er, the early church didn't have an easy start. It was under assault by the Jewish establishment, by the temple establishment, because it came on with gangbusters displacing the power structure that was in place in Jerusalem. And so the high priest who had Jesus killed in the first place was trying to protect himself economically, protect his family's wealth, protect his position, and everybody who fed off of his coattails helped him. One of those people we know historically was named Paul of Tarsus. Yeah, Paul got permission from this same high priest and, and the Sanhedrin to go out and kill any Christian. 
anybody who was following Jesus in this new religion that wasn't called Christianity at that point, it was called the way. And as the way was growing, problems started to develop because we know soon after Jesus ascended into heaven, there was a momentous day in the history of the way. We call it Pentecost, where 3,000 souls in one day were added to the way. These 3,000 people were from all over what we call the diaspora, the world at that time. They came from everywhere. All of them did not speak Hebrew, even though the beginnings and the foundation of the way of Jesus's religion was Hebrew, or Aramaic specifically for Jesus. These people came in speaking different tongues, but believing the same thing. That's the beauty of it. Remember in at Pentecost, the beauty of the miracle that happened there was that fire seemed to fall down on all of them, or like fire. And every man spoke in his, and, and spoke, but you could understand what they were saying. Yeah. It was a miracle. And it was God's way of showing that this is for everyone. Because if we can't communicate effectively, then we can't spread this gospel to everyone. And so all of them all of them ended up, those who joined the new movement, they started moving into Jerusalem, in and around the city. It was also interesting that the ones who moved in came for various purposes. Jews relocated permanently after they accepted Jesus because it was, it was, seen, it was deemed to be uh, uh, an honor for them to die in the holy city. All right. As the as the movement as the movement grew, it was beneficial for them to be in, as you would, the motherland when they passed away. And so husbands and wives and their families would move to Jerusalem. And as life is today, when they moved into the area, the husbands and the wives, more often than not, the husbands would die first. And because of this, that left an inordinate number of widows who were there, and because their husbands passed away, there was no one there to look after these widows who had become part of this ministry. And that's what gave rise to this problem. All of these widows who were not Hebrew-speaking individuals, but were, but were Greek-speaking. Not only were they Greek-speaking, let's walk this down from a cultural standpoint, how we do stuff today. They came in, they didn't talk like us. All right, they didn't talk like us, they didn't dress like us. They probably ate some things differently than we do. When we see that going on, they different. Okay. All right, and we don't always embrace people under those circumstances. And so they found themselves struggling because it was the temple's job, and it took it very seriously, to take care of widows and children. But the, the complaint came up from the Hellenistic widows, the Greek-speaking ones, that every day we're missing out on the stuff that we're supposed to be getting because the temple is giving it out to certain people, but they're being prejudiced to us. Oh, oh this is what's happening. I hope you understand where I'm going with this now. We, we are widows. We are Hellenistic by our culture, but we believe in Jesus too. We love the Lord just like the Hebrew-speaking Hebrew folk. Can I tell you, they were all Christians. They just came from different neighborhoods. How many of us treat folk different because they come from the wrong side of the, of the tracks? And so they lodged a complaint with the authorities. They went to the leadership. That's all the apostles, the apostles. And they said well, that... We're missing out on the daily stuff we're supposed to get. What do we do about it? Now, I love this about this because the, the early church had growing pains. We know that. But anybody in here agree with me that, that nobody wants to be overlooked? No, no, nobody under any circumstance wants to be overlooked. And when you, when you feel like you're being overlooked, you're going to say something about it. You're going to go to the highest authority you can go to in order to try to get things done. And so they go 
to the apostles. And when they come to him, they come to him and they say, we're missing out. And, and I believe that the, it said the daily administration is what they were missing out on. But when we, when we really reduce it down to its, uh, the history of it, Cass, the apostles would have had to make sure, in addition to preaching, praying, and, and helping people, that the table was taken care of. See, that's the confusion in this. And they say, do you want us to stop preaching and teaching to serve tables? That, that, that's, that's what the disciples ask. And it makes it seem like the disciples think that they've gotten too big to serve tables. But that's, that's not the case. It's not the case because they, they don't think themselves too big to serve tables. They believe that if they're focused on what Jesus gave them, they're too busy, not too big to serve table. There's a difference in thinking you too good. Yeah, and I wouldn't want you to leave out of here thinking that they thought they were better than other folk. And you can tell by the way they responded to this that that's not the case. They didn't think they were better than other folk. They said, they said we want you to understand that we hear you. That's the first part. When somebody lodges a complaint, first you have to recognize them and their authenticity of the problem. That's our problem in the United States now. We have never fully been recognized. Yeah, we've been dragged here and forgotten. Yeah, and now it seems like when we say that you ought to level the playing field for us after bringing us here, people act like they don't know who we are. And they act like we're just begging for something that we're not entitled to, not respecting the fact that there was one leadership group in our history that promised they would balance the tables by giving us a portion of what they thought we should have coming to us. And people keep asking for that now. Just level the playing field. Give me my 40 and my mule and level the playing field. But folk look at you now like they don't know who you are. Can I tell you that the, the, the apostles did not do that? They heard these widows and they recognized them and they honored them for the place that they had within the whole group. The whole group. And because they had recognized them, they came up with what it seems to be a really good solution to the problem. They said to them, why don't you, you ladies, you people who are harmed, do this? Go and look among your group and identify seven people who you trust and who have good character and bring those people back to me. Now, now I love this. I love this, Cam. That they didn't say, we're going to decide who among you is the right ones. We're going to determine, you know, which one are the chosen ones in your community. They said, you pick the ones in your community. Now, can I tell you this? We use the words, we, we choose the words disciples, and sometimes we get confused on that. So the apostles being the 12 that Jesus selected, well, the 11 and the one replacement for Judas, those went to the rest of the disciples, which would be everybody following them in the way. And they said, everybody in here come up with a solution. The leadership went to the body and asked the body to help with the plan. And the body went, I believe, I believe, Cass, I believe they went back and prayed because that's what they did. They prayed and they asked the Lord for direction on how they should move forward and resolve this issue. And they came back, according to scripture, with a plan that pleased everybody, all right? They said, we've identified seven men who we believe fit the bill. And I'm gonna tell you something that you might not realize just from a straight reading of this. When the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking women came back to the apostles with 
the solution, they brought back seven names, David, of seven Greek-speaking men. Not Hebrew-speaking men, not like the disciples-speaking men, but they brought back seven names from their own community. In other words, these were seven men from the community they lived in that they trusted, that they honored, and, and we know that because every one of the seven names is Greek. Every one of the seven names is Greek, all right? And when they came and brought those names so that the scales could be balanced, the Bible says that the disciples or the apostles responded affirmatively and took action based on what was recommended to them. They appointed these seven Greek-speaking men to look, watch this, not just be responsible for administering the food to the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking women, but to everybody. They turned the whole operation over to these seven men, and they said, now y'all concentrate on taking care of the body, and we're going to concentrate on taking care of the mind and the spirit. In other words, they made these new individuals partners in ministry. This was an affirmative action program. And it allowed ministry to thrive. It was also, for those of you who have not followed this and what I'm saying, the creation of what we call the deacon's ministry. These individuals were the first deacons appointed. That's why I know every deacon in here has studied this because we've been over it time and time and time again. When they learned it, they taught somebody else this. The deacon's ministry comes out of the office of pastor. That's it in scripture right there. And then deacons and pastors partner together to take care of the congregation came from an affirmative action program because somebody felt like they were mistreated. And the whole organization leveled the playing field to make them feel not only a part of the group, but part of the leadership of the group. It's one thing for you to let me in and let me be a clerk. It's another thing for you to let me in and I can be a vice president. I can actually make decisions. I got hiring and firing authority. Yeah, I, I'm part of the leadership. That's what they created. See, they always let us get in them token seats. Been in this long enough to know the most disposable position you can be in in an organization, and they will when they say they're going to diversify, they will bring you into an HR position. Oh, they will. They will. They will bring you into that position because it becomes easier for them to, one, you got to fire the other folk. Yeah, they don't hardly bring you in over the money. Chief operating officer is problematic. Yeah. Chief finance officer is problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They bring you in over other people because you know where the day-to-day -day problems are on just about every job, right? It ain't on the policies. No, it's on the personnel. It's on, it's on Donnell who won't get to work on time. And you got to go deal with that. And so every day you in turmoil based on that. Now, this is the game that's been played across corporate America for a long time and everywhere. But that's not what the disciples did. They made them, I love this, partners. Partners in ministry. They didn't give them a token position. Yeah, they gave, him, they gave them a tribute. And look, the same qualifications that they required of themselves, 
as leaders and followers of Christ cast, they require that of the deacons. They must be a man of good character who's full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you got to have somebody who believes what we believe because in order for us to work together, we got to see eye to eye. And we might not see eye to eye on food. We might not see eye to eye on dress. But when it comes to what thus said the Lord, we ought to be able to come together on that one. And so based on that, they, they appointed them under this affirmative action program. And I love the fact that these seven deacons came in working. So much so that the last thing it says in this passage of scripture is that the church continue to grow based on them coming on board. Not only that, there was growth opportunity in the place with respect to the deacons. They weren't limited in their ability. They didn't say, they, the apostles didn't say, we are the ministers and you are the deacons and that's the end of your ability to grow. In fact, we know for a fact that one of the first deacons named Stephen got a promotion. Yeah, he came from the deacon's ministry, but it wasn't long before they realized that he was one of the baddest preachers they had. And so he got promoted to the office of minister. And the Bible says that the last thing he did on this side of glory was preach his way out of here. Oh, yeah, they rocked him, they stoned him, they killed him, but he didn't stop running his mouth for the Lord until the last breath. It left him. And so is this an example for us today? That's the question. Can, can we follow this today? And I came to tell you today is that we can use the example in Scripture, in Acts 6, to help deal with some of the cultural tensions that we have today, all right, as we deal with migrant minority groups within our community we saw the apostles choose a pathway that was not how we normally deal with things. They brought people in who were being affected by a problem and they asked those people to come up with a solution and recommendation for the problem. They didn't come up with the problem for the solution for them. They actually listened to them and what they needed and they recognized them as having a voice in the solution. They chose to, watch this, now this is never what we do. They chose to not maintain Anthony the status quo. They created a new leadership structure. A new leadership structure and integrated these new men in the leadership structure. Before the Hellenistic Jewish widows complained, there were no deacons. But because they came and voiced their concern, we've had deacons ever since. We've had partners in ministry ever since. They changed the structure of the Holy Church because the disciples, the apostles were not so proud that they couldn't learn from somebody who didn't have any power. They listened to them. And so the workers who were best suited to heal the ethnic divide were qualified because they were still full of the Holy Spirit. And so as long as we keep our main thing, the main thing, then we can grow from any of the issues that we have. Don't change our standards, but find people who agree with what we believe in, who understand what we believe in, just like those people who will qualify for prayer and preaching, the same table serving required the same spirit of God. In other words, everything we do in ministry has to come through the power of the Holy Spirit, has to come through our love of people, and it doesn't matter if I'm preaching from the pulpit or you're ushering from the door or you're helping on the parking lot or you're cooking, cooking in the kitchen or working in the office. It doesn't matter what your position of service is. We're all in the same ministry. 
We just work from different positions, but we got the same goal. No big eyes and little you. That's what we learn from this message in Acts. We recognize the equality of ministry and the value of everyone who works in the ministry. But not just those who labor, Daryl, in this building. We also recognize the ministry that comes from daddies who raise their children, who teach their children how to be better in the community, from mamas who work in PTO and get off their job and come up there and support not just the educational system, but provide an example for those households whose mamas can't do what they're doing. That's ministry, just like the rest of this is ministry. The scout leaders, that's ministry. Everything we do to further the cause of Christ can come under the umbrella of ministry. And so my question to you today is, do you see your place in ministry? Do you understand where you fit in in ministry? You may not feel a call to be on the pulpit preaching. If you don't feel it, don't do it. I can promise you that. You may not then feel a call to be somebody's pastor. If you don't feel it, don't do it. I promise you you don't want to do it. All right? I promise you you don't want to do it un unless the Lord goes with you. Unless the Lord carries you. It's not a place you want to be by yourself. But you don't want to be an usher if the Lord didn't call you. Because somebody going to come through the door and you're going to cuss one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the Lord needs to be able to hold you. Hold your tongue. What's your place? What's your place in ministry? What's your place in the service of the Lord? If you haven't found it yet, well, now's the time for you to be praying that the Lord will guide you and direct you. We need you in every aspect of what we're doing. We can't find enough folk to go help the folk out there. Yeah, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers, we still got help wanting signs out. While the choir stands to welcome you, if you've just realized that you need to start by giving your life to the Lord, I invite you to do so today. The doors of our church, as we say, are wide open. Whosoever will, let them come. Maybe you've been a part of a church, and now you need a congregation that you can fit into. We invite you to come right now. Do you know Jesus? Come on now. Doors of our church are wide open. Come on. Jesus still wants to be a part. Do you know Jesus? Does he live? 